So this Bob Newhart sketch um, begins with a woman named Catherine Bigman coming in to see her therapist, who is uh, played by uh, Bob Newhart as Dr. Switzer. So she goes in and she tells him she has this fear of being buried alive in a box. And he, as the therapist, tells her, I charge $5 for five minutes, but most sessions don't take that long. She's a little skeptical, but she says, well, okay, I can do that. So she tells him about her problem and how she's afraid of being buried alive in a box and she can't be in anything that's like a box. She can't even be in a house, she says. And he says, oh, so your problem is basically claustrophobia. And she says, yeah, I guess so. And he goes, stop it. And he says, you don't want to go through life being afraid of being buried in a box. That, that would be frightening. Stop it. Since that conversation took less than five minutes and he doesn't make change, she decides that she'll mention a few other problems. So she talks about bulimia and unhealthy relationships with men, a fear of driving, and every time he says, stop it. There's only one exception. She says that she compulsively washes her hands. And Dr. Switzer, who is washing his hands when the skit begins, says, oh, well, that's okay. I, I do that all the time. Don't worry about that one. There are a lot of germs out there. But for everything else, stop it. So is that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6? If you're prone to worry, is Jesus saying, stop it, don't worry, end of conversation, five bucks. First we're going to look at his actual words, and then we'll come back to the stop it question. So for a little context, this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount addresses most directly the subject of money. That's where we began last week with verses 19 through 24, where Jesus shifts our focus back to God who is our treasure in heaven. You can't be a slave to both God and money. And now he picks up with six reasons not to worry. The first reason is that life is more than physical. As Jesus introduces the subject in Matthew 6.25, we realize immediately that the specific area of worry he addresses first is what we might call the bare necessities, food and drink and clothing. As we mentioned last week, these are definitely necessities. Now, some of it could be the audience of us versus the first century Jewish world, but, but don't think that everybody in first century Israel was walking around wondering where their next meal to have an empty pantry or a closet to worry about food and clothing. Is not life more than food, Jesus asks, and the body more than clothes? You aren't just a body, you're a soul. So your life is more than just the physical. The second reason not to worry is that your heavenly father provides. Jesus continues, look at the birds of the air. And a few sentences later, what he's advocating is more than just a walk through nature. He's asking you to look behind creation to the creator. Your heavenly father feeds the birds. God clothes the grass of the field even better than he clothed Solomon in all of his splendor. Now, it's important in this section to keep your focus on God and not press that analogy too far. Of course, the birds and the flowers don't worry. They're not capable of it. We have this thing called a prefer. And although birds don't sow or reap or store away in barns, squirrels can. But, I mean, birds work hard. They're not passive. But then again, the flowers don't labor or spin. So, you, you get the point. You ruin the analogy if you overanalyze it. Jesus' main point is that the same God who provides for them provides for you. 
That's why you don't have to worry. The third reason he gives is that worrying doesn't change anything. A single hour to your life, he asks. Some translations say a single cubit to your height, but the point is the same. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the length of your life or the height of your body. Worry doesn't change either of them. And worrying won't change whatever else you're worrying about. Fourth reason not to worry is that worry is pagan. Now that's pretty blunt, isn't it? So again, Jesus is talking about run after all these things. This is what makes me think Jesus isn't talking to the destitute and the downtrodden. He's not looking at a homeless woman in her tent or the bulging belly of a famine-stricken boy and saying, you're worrying, stop it. But nor is he giving us an excuse not to care for the needs of the poor. Followers of any God, of every God, including the one true God, desire and need something to eat and drink. If you're running after all these things, if you're eagerly pursuing the next level of accumulation because you think then, at that next level, you will be content, you're worried about them not as necessities, but as symbols. At that point, a square meal is not enough. You pursue gourmet. Maybe you used to wear Walmart, and then it had to be Steinmart. Then only Dillard's would do, and then Marc Jacobs, and now it's only Dior is pagan. And this is Amy now. I will add, it's also a matter of pride, running after control. One of the most difficult things I personally ever had to do in my life was learn how to pray the prayer, God, I know you can take better care of this situation or this person than I can. I know you've got their best interests in heart. And as much as I love this person or I care about this thing, I know you love them more. Those are pagan matters. The fifth reason Jesus gives is that your father already knows. This is closely connected with the last reason, but Jesus returns to this God focus he had set up earlier. When I allow discontent with my lot in life to rule, when I'm always thinking, I could be happy if only, the root issue is inadequate theology. It means I don't trust God. He either doesn't situation, it must all be up to me. But I've tried and nothing happened, so I worry that I can't change things because obviously God won't do it. Wonder how many of our prayers seem silly to God because they sound like they're just giving him the facts, like, Lord, Pastor Bob's got the flu. Like, what, what do I expect? Is God going to say, oh my goodness, I, I had no idea. I wish he would have told me last night so I could have healed him. My job is pray a lot for our missionaries, and so it's not like I'm saying, Lord, you know we've got people over in Moldova, and God's going, well, you know what? Gabriel hasn't gotten here to tell me about that today. I'm glad you mentioned it. Fortunately, God doesn't treat our prayers as silly. That's grace that the Holy Spirit reframes our prayers to keep with the Father's will. But he also knows that it's healthy for us to name our needs. We just need to remember that God's not sitting in heaven thinking, if only, then I might be able to figure out what to do about it. He already knows. The final reason, reason number six, for not to worry is that tomorrow is not here yet. By its very definition, worry is about the future. Jesus closes this section by putting that into perspective. Pastor Bob shared a quote from an article on the Huffington Post, which 
it's not typically where we turn to for great quotes, but he found a good one. Taine, one of you French speakers can correct me on that pronunciation later, um, who said about 500 years ago this quote that I actually really love. My life has been filled with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. The article goes on to cite this 2015 research project that concluded that 85% of the things we worry about never happen. And of the things that do happen to us, because it did. Jesus basically said the same thing 2,000 years before the Huffington Post article and 1,500 years before De Montaigne. You almost have to imagine a twinkle in his eye as he concludes this topic of worry by saying, each day has enough trouble for its own. Earlier this week, I was talking with um, Kevin Watkins, who's our director of college and young adult ministries. And Kevin pointed out something I had not seen in this passage before that I wish I still could say I had not. So I wish Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, because there's no reason to worry about tomorrow. But he doesn't. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. You've got enough to worry about right now. And tomorrow, you'll still have enough to worry about. So the point is to focus your mental and physical energies on this moment. You don't get grace or strength for the future in advance. When you get there, whatever there is, your Heavenly Father already knows what you're going to need at that moment. What's the next step you need to take? Do that. So, what are the next steps? And what does Jesus' teaching on worry tell us to do? First, confess it. Own it. Jesus presumes in this passage that you already know the lesson of the Psalms, which is that God can not only handle, but he invites brutal honesty about your worries. Worry is a sin, but that's good news. Pastor Bob is very concerned that you hear this part correctly, so you're going to respond. I will say my part again, and your response is, that's good news. Worry is a sin. That was like two-thirds of you. Worry is a sin. Okay, so why is that good news? In our modern culture, it's very unlikely that your friends are ever going to come up to you, at least not at first. But in my role, I'm not your friend, and I'm not your therapist. I'm just your pastor and a preacher of the word of God. And no matter how we try to reframe what Jesus is saying in this passage, we can't avoid the conclusion that worry is a sin. One commentary was very forthright on this point. Um, a guy named R.H. Mounts wrote, worry is a practical atheism and an affront to word very much, and certainly not as much as used to be the case. And it's probably because of an overreaction to the way that preachers have used the word sin in the past. Too many times, sin has been designed to be a guilt hammer, to put you in a different category, where you're unworthy of associating with the rest of us good people who don't deal with that problem. To call worry a sin is not designed to shame you if you are a worrier. Internal and one external. By external, I mean that you really might be dealing with more difficult life circumstances than most other people you know. Life is tough right now. And the natural trajectory is that it's probably going to get tougher. By internal, I mean that some people are just predisposed to worry either by heredity or environment. So maybe you were born that way. Or maybe as you grew up, you followed the example of your mom or dad or someone else than positive. 
At this point, we're going to interject in Bob's sermon, and I'm going to tell you what I would have asked Bob about if I had had a chance to talk to him about this sermon before having to preach it. And that is, as an aside, clinical issues like anxiety and depression are not something you can choose. You can't change them, and I would not say it is a sin to have an anxiety or depression disorder. But, like most things in life to those things, And you can choose God-honoring responses, even to things you cannot control, or you can choose sinful responses. So by willfully nurturing your worry, or by being owned and controlled by your worry, I would say that is a sin. That is still unbelief. Just because you're predisposed to worry, you don't get a pass from admitting that worry is a barrier between you and God, between you and other people, or both. It's anything that separates you from God. So here Jesus is doing the same thing with worry that he did with greed in the previous passage, the same thing he did with giving and prayer and fasting in the section before that, and the same thing he did with topics like lust and anger back in chapter 5. The whole Sermon on the Mount seems to be designed to expand the definition of sin while we often try to contract it and make it as I think it's because when I really understand the nature of sin, I stop thinking of myself as better than other sinners. By uncovering every rock under which I might try to hide, Jesus levels the playing field. If you're a worrier, welcome. You're in a community of people who fall short. It's good news because when you admit the sin, you're so much more comfortable around other sinners. Your marriage, Tim Keller writes, to be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can. The reason that this is good news is that confessing sin is the best thing that can happen to us. We often worry about being exposed, but exposure is exactly the place where we find healing. If you've been following along with our 150 Days of Prayer devotional guide, You recently read Judy Stewart's devotion about Psalm 32, where King David shares the incredible blessing of being forgiven. He feels that the choice to live in denial, deceit, and silence about his transgression was literally killing him. So if you're trying to excuse your worry as justifiable because of what's happened to you or allowable because it's just who you are, stop it. Confess it for what it is, and you'll be amazed at how much freedom there is in naming that before God, and in the right context, naming it before others. Ask in the grace of God that because Jesus died for your sins, you are forgiven and loved and restored and declared perfect by God the Father. That is good news. More than once during this passage, Jesus redirects the attention of the worrier. He doesn't just say, stop it. He says, replace it. Notice the birds of the air. Ponder the lilies of the field, heavenly father. Jesus teaches here what Richard Rohr calls wandering in nature. 
It's the kind of thing that after 160 days of camping, the scouts are really good at. Rohr says, if you'll deliberately place yourself where human impact is minimal, you'll be able to discover God's presence. Kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is simply where God is in charge. So the focus Jesus wants is on releasing control to him and on behaviors that please him. Jesus adds, and all these things will be given to you as well. So he's not saying that you're not going to have troubles. In fact, he specifically says you will. He's not promoting a direct cause and effect, saying that, you know, I guarantee if you seek God, saying that he will be enough for you when you focus on him. In his book, The Soul of Shame, Kirk Thompson says, we are what we pay attention to. So if you have become passive about what you let into your mind, or worse yet, if you've chosen to pay attention to what you know will worry you, stop it. There's a wide gap between the struggle against involuntary worry and the choice to allow our eyes and ears to open. Pay attention to what you pay attention to that's feeding your worry. You might feel like you don't have control over your feelings when you're exposed to some stimulus, but you probably have more control than you realize over the stimuli. The Apostle Paul, in addressing worry, says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, peace will be with you. Paul also says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, prayer and thanks are two ways of paying attention to God. Meditate on the scriptures. Psalm 23 is one well-known example, but you can find so many psalms and other texts throughout the Bible to ponder when worry is getting the upper hand. And for the next four months, we've got hard copies. If you still want one, and if you want it by email, let the church office know. We would love to send you a psalm a day to focus on. This passage focuses on the need for ongoing choices. Replace it is not a one-and-done solution. If you've been pursuing things that will never satisfy, stop it, Jesus says, and instead, pursue your worry. That might be hunting it, chasing it, staying on the quest. In the original Greek of the New Testament, you can translate a prohibition like do not worry as don't keep worrying or stop worrying. So which one did Jesus say? I think the answer is both. In verse 25, don't keep worrying, is what he means. And in verses 31 and 34, stop worrying. In other words, whether your worry is getting ready to start up, deal with it. Now, I don't think Jesus is suggesting that everyone is equally capable of flipping a worry switch on and off. But I do think he's saying about worry exactly what he would say about any other sin, which is, don't give up. Don't ever let up on the hunt any more than you would any other sin or addiction. Now, for some people, that is easy to stop worrying. The of believers who can hold you accountable when you start to worry. If you have more severe issues, we've got an anxiety support group here on campus that we would love to connect you with. 
and any of our pastors can refer you to trained Christian counselors who will walk you through this compassionately, but firmly. And perhaps, most importantly, in those times when you see some progress, claim the phrase, I am a recovering worrier. If you likely have times when you are doing a little better, those are the moments to use the energy and the progress and the momentum to set in motion some new action steps and even new relationships that'll help you sustain that progress. So let me focus on the good news again as we close. Jesus came into our world so he could experience personally and directly every area of human struggle. Picture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, worry. Because worry is a sin, and we know that Jesus didn't sin. But in that moment, and in so many others during his life on earth, he entered into our battle against sin. So you can talk to him about this one, too. Not only does he understand it, he died and rose again, so that when you put your trust in him, you never have to bear the weight of guilt and shame even when you have given in to worry. And he's going to get you there. Let's pray. Lord, we bear so many worries and so many burdens. And what a joy and what a refreshing opportunity to realize that you know our sins, you know our struggles, and that you have come to take them from us. Lord, just like Wes showed the children that you want to lift those weights out of our bag, would you give us the ability to release our control of the things that worry us? Let us know that you want to take the light. Lord, give us the grace to accept your intervention and your help. Give us the courage to call a sin a sin when we see it. And give us the faith to follow you wherever you are leading us. We pray this in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.